chapter 13 today. Um, and, and in this passage, Jesus is with his disciples, probably the week before he died, probably the week before he was crucified. And, and he's at dinner with them. It may be the night before uh, he died, maybe in the upper room, or it might be a couple nights before. Uh, but he's with them, and he knows it's near the end. He knows he only has uh, a short amount of time left with them. Um, so what he does and what he says is, is essential. It's, it's very important, and we should take note. Uh, so, he's in the upper room. The gospel writer, John, is, describes himself as leaning against Jesus. So he's right there with Jesus. Jesus, is, Jesus washes his disciples' feet in a, shocking, in a shocking way, which I'll describe a little bit later. And he, out, he outs Judas as his betrayer with a kiss. So Judas leaves the room, and the events leading to Christ's crucifixion are set in motion. Again, he knows, he knows the end is near, and he has very little time left with his disciples. So, with that, give your attention to the reading of God's word from John chapter 13. When he had gone out, that is Judas, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord. So today we are wrapping up a sermon series on the passages in the New Testament that use the phrase one another. One of the parts of our church's vision is that we will be a biblical community. It's nice to say that we're a biblical community, but what in the world does that mean, to be a biblical community? Well, these one another passages that we've heard preached over the last several weeks really give content to what it means to be a biblical community. So I'd encourage you to go back and listen to them. Uh, and, it's, and it's no coincidence that this series began with the command, love one another, from 1 John, and it also ends with the command, love one another, from, from John's gospel. And that's because the command to love one another is the cornerstone of how we are to treat one another in a biblical community. It's the one command in which all of the other one another commands are encapsulated. But just as with these other one another commands, Loving one another doesn't always come naturally to us. Our instinct is often for self-preservation. We want to take care of ourselves first, and, and most of the time. And even if we have the best of intentions on our own, we fail to put the interests of others before ourselves, which is what we're called to do. So my wife Helen and I are celebrating our 20th anniversary later this year. Uh, so, 20 years ago this summer, actually on July 14th, 2021, 
many, many moons ago. I asked Helen to marry me, and she said yes, fortunately. 2001, uh, a long time ago. But the, the weeks leading up to the time I proposed to Helen, I was a man on a mission. I did things for Helen that I've never done since. I, there, was, <laughs> there, there was a week, there was a week when every day I left either a, a gift or a note outside of her apartment. So Helen loved Sour Patch Kids, but she only loved the orange and the red ones. She didn't like the green and the yellow ones. I bought multiple packs of Sour Patch Kids, picked out the yellow and green ones, and left a bag of orange and red ones on her doorstep for her. That's, that's what kind of mission I was on, to show her that I loved her and to win her over. And fortunately, fortunately it, it worked for me. And, and I wish I could say that I had sustained that level of, of mission and single-mindedness for the last 20 years, um, but alas, I haven't. Um, and the reality is that romantic passion, which I was fueled by, it ebbs and it flows. Um, our love for each other lasted, fortunately, uh, but I've never been able to repeat what I did that week 20 years ago. Uh, in the sermon passage today, Jesus commands us, commands his disciples, to love one another in the same way that he loved them. That's his command to us, too. But what does it take for us to sustain that kind of love for one another? How can we possibly love one another the way that Jesus loved us, the way that he loved his disciples? We need something more than our good intentions to carry out this call. So what motivates us? What animates our love for each other in the long haul? How can we be freed up to love freely? The first point I want to make is that Jesus speaks with authority in this passage. Here he gives his disciples a command. It's a law for them to obey. As, pe as, as people who are followers of Jesus... We are people under authority. We're compelled to respond to what God wills and commands. And what he wills and commands in this verse is that we love each other. He says, it's a new commandment I give you. It's not a new suggestion. It's not a new idea. It's not a new possibility. It's not a new life option. It's a new commandment. The call of Christ is not merely to make an intellectual assent or a confession of faith, although those are important. It's a call for obedience. It's a call to action. Jesus also says that this is a new commandment. Well, what makes this new? There's nothing necessarily new about the command to love one another. We saw earlier in one of our confessions that Jesus summed up the law with love God and love other people. That wasn't new. It was in the Old Testament at the very beginning of God's word. But what's new here is the way we are to love. He says we are to love as he loved. In verse 34, he says, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. The way that Jesus loved was a totally new concept that the world had never seen before that time. Never before had love been so perfectly embodied. The Son of God coming into the world to lay down his life for his people in a pure act of love. 
So if we are to love as Jesus loved, we have to ask, how did Jesus love? What did he do and how did he do it? What motivated him? What inspired him to love the way he did? And there's two, thing I, two things I want us to focus on. First, Jesus' love is the new pattern for love. And we are to imitate it. It's a pattern that we're to imitate. And secondly, Jesus' love is the power for our love. And it's a love in which we participate. So it's a power in which we participate. John Piper puts it this way. If we're to love as Jesus loved, his love is the pattern we live by and the power we live on. I borrowed this framework from John Piper just to give credit where credit's due. So let's start with this. Jesus' love is the pattern for our love that we're to imitate. When Jesus says, love one another just as I've loved you, he's saying we should love like him. And we don't have to look far back in chapter 13 to figure out what he means. He had just shown his disciples what love looked like when he washed their feet. Normally, in a good Palestinian home, people came in with dirty feet, right? They were walking around in a dusty desert in sandals all the time, and their feet were dirty. And so in a, in a hospitable Palestinian home, either a servant or the lady of the house would wash the guest's feet. It was scandalous. It would be scandalous for the master of the house, for the Lord of the banquet to wash the guest's feet. Yet that's just what Jesus does here. He sets aside his authority and his position, and in humility, he served his disciples in a very practical way. They needed their feet washed, and he did it. In verse 14 in chapter 13, uh, he says this about the, the foot washing. He says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Jesus, their Lord and their teacher, a person in a position of authority, has no business washing his followers' feet. But in this act, he's essentially saying to his disciples, I count you as more significant than than myself, and I, I choose to serve you. So the pattern of Jesus' love here that we're called to follow is that he lays down his power, his authority, and his position in acts of service. Now the second pattern is is probably the most obvious one. Uh, It's the greatest act of love that ever occurred. And it happened just a a few days after he was talking to his disciples, uh, which is his death on a cross. And in John chapter 15, uh, and again in the same sort of night that he's talking to the disciples, he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And that's just what he did. So the pattern of Jesus' love that we are called to follow is to lay down his life. He laid down his life for us, and we're to lay down our lives for each other. Jesus' pattern of love is really well described by uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, in Philippians chapter 2. And I'm going to read a little bit of of Philippians chapter 2. He says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this is the type of love that we're called to imitate as our pattern. But as I noted earlier, there's a problem with just trying to imitate Jesus' love. On our own, we don't have that capacity. So on the night that I proposed to Helen... Uh, I read that passage from Philippians 2 to her. So I took her out to a really nice dinner, uh, and then we went for a walk in my neighborhood to a, a local park. But in the afternoon before we had gone to dinner, I had hidden under a park bench a Bible, uh, a, what we used to call a boombox, uh, <laughs> and a bottle of champagne. And so we go to dinner and we come back and I'm taking her on a walk and I'm sure she's figured out what's happening or maybe not. And uh, we get to this park where the stuff hadn't been stolen in a city park in Atlanta. And I, I played Chopin for her, which is her favorite composer. And then I read, I read this, this passage from Philippians to her. This was, this was a bold stroke of romance and spirituality mixed together, <laughs> all well-intentioned. Uh, and I asked her to marry me, and she said yes, of course. But uh, I wonder now, as I look back, why is it that I have failed more often than I have succeeded to, to live this commitment out? Uh, not just in my marriage, but with friends, uh, with my, my friends in this church, with my family. And the short answer is it's a, a combination of, of selfishness and pride. I'm often distracted by my own self-interests. Uh, and I'm so consumed by protecting myself and doing it on my own and making sure that I'm taken care of that I can't possibly see or meet someone else's needs. You see, apart from a divine intervention, we don't naturally love the way that Jesus did. Instead, we try to hold on to our status, our position, our power, the things we think we're entitled to. And the crazy thing is that even our attempts to love one another, our attempts to do good, get turned into an attempt to earn approval, to look good, to, to attain our own righteousness. So what, what would it take for us to be transformed more into the image of Jesus to love the way he loved? Well, it, it takes nothing short of divine intervention. And, and the answer is the second point I'm going to make, which is that viewing Jesus' love as the pattern that we should imitate isn't enough by itself. We also need to be, we also need Jesus' love to be the power for us to love one another. It's in his love that we're motivated, inspired, and animated to love other people. John 15, again, just, just after he's, he's given this, this command to love one another, he essentially repeats himself. Uh, and he describes how his love is the power for us to love one another because we can participate in the love that God the Father has for Jesus. 
And he repeats the new commandment in chapter 15. He says, love one another as I have loved you. But he doesn't merely describe the pattern that we're to live by. He describes a vital connection that we can have with him that gives us the power to love. It's the same connection that he has with the Father. So look at John 15, verses 9 and 10 for a second. And there's this beautiful formula he spells out here. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my commandments, my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. Jesus uses the analogy of a vine and, a branch, and branches. And in essence, he's saying, you will be able to love one another in the same pattern that I loved you, not merely by copying me, but by connecting to my vine. You see, we are grafted into the Father's love. What does it mean for us to abide in Jesus' love the same way that he abided in the Father's love? Well, what do we know from Scripture about the Father's love for Jesus? And this is what I was hinting at in the, in the children's homily earlier. Uh, before Jesus' ministry started at all, before he'd healed anyone, before he'd preached a sermon, God the Father spoke his love for Jesus. This is recorded in Matthew 1, and, or excuse me, Mark 1 and Matthew 3. He says, you're my beloved, well-pleasing son. The sky opened. The sky opened and the dove descended. And I imagine that God the Father revealed his pleasing face to Jesus. And Jesus saw and heard that the Father was well pleased with him. When we were children, we looked to the parents, to the faces of our parents for feedback. This is what I was getting at earlier with the kids. Children look to their parents for pleasure. It shapes who we are and what we do, both for good and for bad. I heard a radio interview recently uh, with a professional musician and, uh, of a somewhat obscure instrument. I want to say it was the bassoon. For, uh, my apologies to any of you who are bassoon players. I'm sure it's not that obscure. Uh, but anyway, like when he was asked why he was pursuing a career playing the bassoon, he answered, when I played as a child, I saw the pleasure on my parents' faces. You see, a parent's pleasure for his or her child has immense power in shaping what the child does, who they are. And, and I propose to you what, the, what allowed Jesus to lay down his status, his title, to serve people the way he did, to wash their feet, to die on a cross, was that he was completely secure in the Father's love for him. He knew the Father's pleasure in him. He had seen it on his face. He had heard it in his voice. And he knew God's character and promises from the scriptures that God's steadfast love never failed. He had nothing to prove to anyone. He was completely free to love freely. And through Jesus' sacrifice, his death on our behalf, we have been adopted as his sons and his daughters. And when God looks on you, he smiles at you with the same pleasure that he has for his son Jesus. 
It's certainly not because of anything we've done. In fact, it's in spite of, of what we've done. But we are his beloved, well-pleasing sons and daughters. So just like Jesus, we can be secure in the Father's love. And like Jesus, we can be freed to love freely. So how does knowing that we're loved set us free to love others? If I trust that my needs are met, I can focus on other people's needs. If I no longer have to prove myself, I no longer have the burden of trying to make a good impression to make myself look good, I can stop worrying. I can lay down my status. I can stop trying to protect myself. And I can truly consider the needs of others above my own. So I want to encourage you today, this week, to take time, like Jesus did, to reflect on this love, to remember it, to rest in it, to meditate on it, to feel it. As Jesus prepared to exit the world that night, he knew that his love would remain in the world. He said all people would know that we were his disciples by our love, by his love, by his love to us. His sacrificial, other-centered love is made manifested in, in his people. It's not merely a simulation. His love actually remains in the world today through us. So Village Church, may you love one another as Jesus loved. I exhort you to lay down your status, to lay down your entitlements, and to serve one another in practical, sacrificial ways, the same as Jesus did. But as you do so, may you abide in Jesus' love in the same way that he abided in his Father's love. We are invited into the perfect love of a father for a child. Your heavenly father smiles on you with pleasure. May you rest secure in his pleasure as you look to the needs of others. Please pray with me. Father, we pray today that we would know and feel and experience the power of your love for us and that it would set us free to love each other well. Uh, Lord, we pray that as we go from here, this week, this month, this year, that we would love each other well, uh, that we would be inspired by your love for us to love each other well, and that we would rest securely in your love for us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.